Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Prodigal. The parable of the father and his two sons in Luke 15 graphically displays the gospel and human sin, the gracious heart of the father, the wandering heart of the younger son, and the judgmental heart of the older brother. So hear the word of our gracious God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
I recently, in preparing, meditating and thinking about this parable, reread a novel that I'd read a couple of years ago. It's a novel called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson that uh, it won a number of awards. Her previous novel had won a lot of awards. Uh, and in the novel Gilead, which is a wonderful novel that I highly recommend, it's a story about an old man. He's actually 76 at the beginning. He turned 77. But he's got a son who's about seven or eight. And he's writing a journal to his son because he knows he's got heart problems and he's going to die. And he wants his son to understand who he is. And so he's writing and explaining. And in the story, um, he's, uh, he's a third-generation preacher. His grandfather was a preacher in that area back at the time of the Civil War. His father had been a preacher. And then he's a preacher all in this small town named Gilead in Iowa. But the whole story, in many ways is an expansion of the themes in this parable. Grace and mercy and forgiveness and judgmentalism and the interactions of a family. And so it's a great story that kind of goes through that and helps you to see and understand the parable in a new way. And this particular parable is active in the story. I wasn't even sure whether to begin by talking about Gilead or going back. There's the old play and based on a book, Les Miserables, which also deals with many of the same themes that are in this parable. And this parable is one of the most loved of Jesus. Many people, even if they haven't been to church much before, they've heard this story. They've heard the, the background of what it is. And it is one of the most loved of Jesus' parables, and I believe one of the most misunderstood. And that starts right with what we call it and what we think the emphasis of the parable is. So we're going to take three weeks to break it down, and we're going to look and say, what's Jesus trying to teach us in this parable? And thankfully, I didn't even have to figure that out. Luke gives us an introduction and explains to us why Jesus told the parable so we can know what's going on. And how do we apply it in our own day and to our own lives? So we're going to begin today by looking at the Father's heart. Now, Luke very helpfully gives us the background of the parable. He doesn't just list the parable. He tells us what's going on and why Jesus has told this parable. And it begins there, notice in verses 1 and 2, that we read the tax collectors and sinners. The NIV has put quotes around that. They don't use quotes in Old Greek. Quotes did not exist like that. But they're right in doing that. Because that's not what Jesus would have called them. It's not what Luke would have called them. But it is how the other characters that are around Jesus view this group of people. Tax collectors and sinners were notorious groups of those who disobeyed God and were rejected by the religious people of their day. The religious people didn't like them. The feeling was oftentimes mutual back. They did not get along because of the lifestyles of these particular uh, individuals. But these people, notice, are very attracted to Jesus. Though Jesus is a religious teacher, there's something distinct about him and about his message and the way he relates to them. So these people find themselves attracted to Jesus and wanting to be around him. And in fact, the, the way the Greek puts it, it's, I, I won't go into all the grammar, but the tense of the verb that's used, it appears this was an ongoing thing. 
It's not like just suddenly at this moment in Luke 15, suddenly there were tax collectors and sinners around Jesus. In fact, they were habitually coming to Jesus. He was habitually hanging out with them, and that's going to create the problem that we're going to see in just a moment. Jesus' words and actions drew those whose behavior normally caused them to keep their distance from religious people. There was something that was so compelling about Jesus and about his message that drew these people who normally wanted nothing to do with religious people. Oh, that that were true of believers today. Now, that's, that's what's happening, but we're also told the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're not happy about this. Notice it continues there in verse 2, but, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. I love that. They muttered. Okay, that they're not happy and they start muttering to one another and they say, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. See, we're holy. We don't want to have anything to do with these people because if we don't immediately reject them, they might think we're approving of their behavior. Now, in actuality, in the Gospels, Jesus is the one person who can say, You can't convict me of anything I've done. You you, you can't accuse me of any wrongdoing, but yet he's willing to reach out and to welcome these people. He doesn't agree with all the things that tax collectors and sinners do. In fact, he reproves very often the specific things they're doing. But he is welcoming towards them. And the tax collectors and the Pharisees don't like this. And especially the idea that he would eat with them. This was very bothersome. So they are muttering they are murmuring, they are grumbling and complaining about Jesus and what he's doing. And let me just say briefly, in every age, those who display God's heart to the outcast, to the lost, are going to be accused by those who think of themselves as the religious police. They're going to get upset about it, and they don't like it, and they're going to accuse them of compromising even when they don't. If there's only been one human being who never compromised. That was Jesus. And yet, the religious authorities were accusing him of compromising. Okay? Always going to be that way. In fact, if nobody's complaining about what you're doing in your walk with Jesus, that's probably a warning sign. Sirens ought to be going off. Okay? Because if we are truly reaching out with the love and the holiness of God, we're probably going to be upsetting people on all kinds of sides. But so be it. So Jesus, in response to this, tells this parable. That's why Luke 15, 3 says, Then Jesus told them this parable. And the them is particularly the Pharisees. He tells actually three stories here. And all three stories have the same point. And that point is God's heart towards the lost. That's what all, the point of all three stories is, which is why I think we get the thing backwards. So we're going to be looking at the third parables where we're going to spend all of our time. I'll mention the other two briefly. Um, and it's the parable of the man and his two sons. And we're looking at it because it's the longest and most detailed, and it's also the most beloved. It's the one that's, that's known the best. So we're going to take the time to do it. And it's usually, as I said, called the parable of the prodigal son. But we say that because we think the focus in it is the younger son and his problem and his behavior. But that's not the focus in the story. That's not what it's about. 
We also do that because when we think of the word prodigal, we think of prodigal as meaning you go off, and it's like the older brother said, you're off wasting your living on prostitutes and such. But that's not really what prodigal means. Prodigal really means that you are lavish and you give away so much to the point of being reckless and wasteful with something. And I want to go ahead and tell you right now, if there's anybody prodigal in the story, it's the father. If there's anybody in here that is lavish and reckless, it's the father. Because he's lavish and reckless with grace and with love and with mercy. So the story is not about all those sinners out there. The story is about God's heart towards those who are lost. And so it's a story about the father's heart that we're going to look at today, and then the heart of the two sons, because the, the two sons' hearts are there. But we're going to see the younger son's biggest problem is not really the stuff he was off doing. It was misunderstanding his father. And the older son's problem is not the stuff he was doing, but he misunderstands the heart of his father. So let's dive in and look at the, the, the parable itself. Now the basic plot is, notice Jesus says he doesn't call it the parable of the prodigal son. That's nowhere there. How he refers to it is there was a man who had two sons. And so there's a story of a father and two sons. And this parable, unlike the other two, the first one dealt with a man and a hundred sheep. The second one dealt with a woman and ten coins. This one's only people. It's a father and his sons. And it's going to show the father's heart towards each of his sons and then the son's misunderstanding heart back towards the father. And so what happens at the very beginning of the story is the younger son leaves the father or he comes in and he actually misunderstands the father. And we see this right up front with the younger son and he breaks the father's heart. And we're going to see both of them misunderstand the father, but we begin with the younger son. Notice he comes with this rude, shameful, hurtful request. He comes in and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, listen to what that means. I was just with my, my parents last week. You know, my aunt had died and I was down there to do the funeral. And my, my dad's 80. Not once in riding along with my dad did I say, when are you going to kick off and give me my stuff? Right? I mean, think about it. That's what the son's saying. Dad, it's been nice knowing you, but when am I going to get my stuff? That's, that is just rude on every level. It is shameful, and it is hurtful towards the father. And I want to tell you, you, you do need to understand some stuff about ancient culture, but you don't even have to know ancient culture to know if you just sit and get what Jesus is saying here in this story. This is wrong on every level. The son is saying to the dad, basically, I'm more interested in what you have than you yourself. I want your stuff. I'm not that interested in you. So the younger son, amazingly enough, and this is where we start to see the prodigality, we would expect, and Jesus' hearers would expect, the father to order the younger son away and say, I disinherit you, but he doesn't do that. Right from the beginning, he says, so he divided his property, and he gives the younger son his stuff. Well, this sometimes did happen in the ancient world. A father would say, as he was getting older, I'm going to go ahead and divide the property. 
all of the, the income keeps coming back to me, but I'm going to go ahead and split the rights up and, and do that. But you waited. But see, the younger son's rudeness continues because we read down in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth. So he's already taken the stuff and sold it, which creates major problems for the whole family. And he takes his possession and he leaves because it's not enough. He's not only saying, Dad, I'm not really interested in you. I'm interested in your stuff. Here's what I really think. I think real joy and real life is not found in your presence, but getting away from your presence. That's where I'm going to find what I really want is getting away from you. Put yourself in the Father's place. How would that feel? What would that be like to have a son do that? And we'll come back more to why this is the son's heart next week. But it leads to disastrous results. And so I won't put all the verses up there, but you know the story where the son goes off. For a while, everything's great. He's got lots of money. All of his friends are around. And it ends up, however, with him being destitute. I actually, in being down... uh, near the the place where my whole family originally came from in Louisiana, went around and visited, and I saw a very graphic example of this where somebody inherited an entire estate and the whole place looks like a pigsty now. It's just been destroyed through riotous living, exactly like the younger son. And that's exactly what goes on in the parable. And it ends up so bad, Jesus is so graphic in the story that he says the young man loses everything, nobody's helping, he has to hire himself out. He's no longer the the son of a wealthy man. He's now hiring himself out like a slave, and he hires himself out to work with pigs, which is the worst thing that a Jew could possibly do. You don't want to have any contact with pigs. This guy's not only around the pigs, he's having to work with them, and he's so bad off, he's literally looking at the pig's slop and saying, that looks pretty good. I think I would like some of that. I want to eat some of that. That's what he's been reduced to. He was sure getting away from his father was going to bring joy. What it actually has brought is he's living with the pigs. He's living with the swine. And the father has apparently heard reports about this. Now why I say this is notice in verse 20. The young man has decided he's going to go home. He figures out he'll be better off even if he goes back. It repents and admits his folly and says, I'll just get hired out. I've already wasted my inheritance, but maybe my dad will hire me. And as he's making his way home, we read in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion him. So the father is clearly looking. The father is watching out for the child. And he's so far away. This is why I say he must know what's going on because it's not when the son gets close and he sees him. The father's already got compassion. The father already knows what has happened to the son. He already knows that the son has wrecked everything. But he still looks and he has compassion on him. So even though the son has rejected the father, He's more interested in the father's stuff than the father himself. Even though he has gone away, he thinks that life is found away from the father rather than with the father. The father's heart still longs for his son, and he's still full of compassion for his child. So that's the father and the younger son. Now there's also the older son. And in this part, I'm just wanting us to see what they've done, how much they've hurt the father. The older son, when he hears that the father has forgiven all and received him back and is throwing a party, 
The older son comes in and he misunderstands and he breaks the father's heart as well. Because we read in verse 28, the older brother becomes angry. The father is joyful. This is probably the most joy he has seen in his father in years. And his response to that is not being happy for his father, but being angry with his father. How dare you have joy that he's come back? How can you do that? And notice he also, he doesn't even view himself as a son. The younger son thought that I need to get away from dad. The older son stays home, but he does not view himself as a son any more than the younger son does. He says, I have, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've been a slave. I've been lower than your hired men. That's what I've been doing for you. And there's never been anything that you've offered to give me. Now, there's nothing in this parable that tells us the father would in any way have refused the older son's request. Everything in it is that the father's prodigal. But the older son views him as a miser. You won't give me anything. And then notice, he refuses to acknowledge his brother. It's not now that my brother has come home. It's when this son of yours comes back, and he's wasted everything with prostitutes, which, by the way, nothing in the parable tells us he was with prostitutes. Just the older brother's got his imagination going as to what the younger son's been off doing. Notice, he's completely misunderstanding the father's heart, and he is breaking the father's heart by doing so. So we have a picture here that both sons misunderstand the father and break his heart. The younger son is rude, and he simply wants to be free. And that leads to his actions. The older son views himself as a slave and is angry at the slightest sign of the father's mercy and forgiveness. That brings anger rather than joy. Now we're going to look again at the sons a lot in the next two weeks, but I want you to see today at the very beginning, neither of these children understands their father. They both see him wrongly. They see him differently from one another, but each of them view him wrongly. And the words and actions of each of them bring pain to his heart. They've both failed their father. And therein lies the heart of the parable. So what we turn to is the father's heart. And there's three things I want us to see about the father's heart today. Number one, the father's heart of love for his children. In all three parables, if you read Luke 15, a valued object is lost. Man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away and he wants that sheep. A woman has ten coins and one of them is lost and she wants that coin. A father has two sons and one or both are lost and he wants them. And I want you to notice Jesus here is building it up. The, the stakes are getting higher with each parable. First it's a sheep then it's a coin, then it's a person. First it's one out of a hundred, then it's one out of ten, then it's one or both sons that are lost and estranged from their father. And so this is why the father has compassion on the younger son. We read again in verse 20, while the son is still a long way off, the father sees him and he's filled with compassion and he ran to his son and he throws his arm around and kissed him. And you need to understand, this was not, the audience didn't jump up and say, yes, Jesus. They all said, what? Why is he doing that? What? 
You're, you're just encouraging the son in that behavior. Why would you respond this way to the son? This was not somebody saying, yes, Jesus, this is good. This is another story where Jesus is poking holes in the way they view God, the way they understand who God is. So the father is filled with compassion for the younger son because he understands the younger son is lost. He, he understands the younger son doesn't really know who the father is. He doesn't understand where true life is found. And so he, he's not just angry with the younger son. He's filled with compassion and love. And so this love prompts him to forgive the younger son. Notice when the younger son comes back and he repents in verses 21 to 24. Remember, he had rehearsed a speech. And the speech was, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but maybe you can take me on as a hired hand and just hire me back. But when he comes back, all he gets out is, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you got a picture. It's almost like the father's like, shh, 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 stop. No. Bring out the robe. Bring out the ring. Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. He doesn't even let him finish and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Fact is, he wasn't worthy to be called his son. He just wasn't. Neither is the older son. He's not worthy. But the father says, no, 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 I'm not going to hear that. I'm going to receive you. I forgive you. I receive you as a son, not as a slave. I love you so much. All your rude behavior, all your misunderstanding of my heart, all your thinking that true life is found away from me rather than with me, it's forgiven. It's wiped clean. I forgive your disrespectful words and your behavior. I clean it all away. Now again, this behavior is scandalous. It's the scandal of the grace of God. It's the, it looked overindulgent to the audiences. And friends, look, this parable... This parable is not parenting advice. It's not advice on how to run a business. This is straight from the heart of God to say, this is the way I view you as my lost and wandering children. This, friends, is prodigal grace. All sin is forgiven. The relationship with the Father is restored. There's no exacting a pound of flesh. Well, you can come back, but you sit in the corner for a while. All is forgiven. All is restored. The point of the story, the very heart of it, is the prodigal, reckless grace of God. And that is good news because that is your only hope and my only hope. Because we are either younger sons or older sons. That's the way our hearts run. And if it's not for prodigal, reckless grace, we're in trouble. Either one of us. And the older son doesn't know it, but he needs prodigal, reckless grace as much as the younger son does. We are in desperate need for God to be the prodigal God. To say what we sang this morning, no matter how great our sins are, His mercy is more. That's the, the amazing thing which the older son doesn't get. The Father knows your sins. When we sing in that song that what love could remember, no, all the wrongs we have done. God knows your sin better than you do. You don't even know all the sins you have to your account, nor do I. 
And if it wasn't for prodigal, reckless grace, we're lost and without hope. We're condemned to live as a slave or live with the pigs. There is no other hope. So that's the first thing is the Father's heart of love. The second thing is that love prompts the Father's heart to seek and restore his lost children. Notice in all three parables, the shepherd doesn't say, well, one sheep wandered off, but 99's pretty good. I'm happy with that. What does he do? Right, I'm going after him. I'm looking for him. I'm going to go seek that sheep out. Worst business principle ever. I'll leave the 99, I'm going after the one. But Jesus says, I want you to understand, this is prodigal, reckless grace. When a sheep is gone, the father is out looking for him. When the coin is lost, he doesn't say, oh, well, there's nine. I still got nine. No, I am lighting a lamp. I am searching. I am looking at every corner of the house. I am going to find this that is lost and bring it home. And it's the same thing even with the son. And so this was something new. Rabbis in Jesus' day and before had agreed that God would welcome the repentant sinner. But nobody thought God would seek him out. But Jesus is saying, God's grace is more prodigal and reckless than you ever imagined. He not only welcomes you home, he seeks you out. He's looking for you. Because if he didn't, you would never be found. You would never be found, nor would I. God lowers himself and seeks the sinner out. So in the parable, notice the father is looking for the younger son, and he runs to meet him. you got a picture. I mean, in the old days, he's got to hike the robes up, and he goes around. Nothing is more undignified. And Jesus says, this is the way the father is towards us. He runs to us. He's never ran from anything in his existence. It's not possible. Nothing causes him fear. Nothing can back him down. But yet he runs to welcome a prodigal, to welcome one who is lost, to come back home. This son shows repentance and starts the journey home because, see, we're as human beings, one thing that's different between a sheep and a coin is we're not forced into relationship with God. But God is there, and he's waiting, and he is seeking. He's looking while the son is a long way off, and then we get that scandalous picture of compassion and lavish affection towards the son. And then notice, the father doesn't just seek the younger son. He does it with the older son. When we read in verse 28, the older brother is angry and refuses to go in. Now, what they would expect is the father would say, that's his problem. And anytime he wants, he can come in here to me. But that's not what the father does. What the father does is he goes out and he pleads with the hard-hearted, lost, older son. The other brother is refusing and shaming the father. The father is still seeking him. And even when the older brother is terribly disrespectful, notice how tenderly he speaks to him. The, remember, it's the, look, you, you've given it all away to this son of yours. And notice the father's response, verses 31 and 32. My son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. I'm not the hard-hearted, stingy guy you think, but, but look, I have to say, it is necessary that I celebrate. Your brother was lost. And notice it's tenderly, your brother. 
not just my son, he's your brother. And he was lost. He now is found. He was dead. He's alive. He's been restored to us. Once again, scandalous to the Jews. Nobody would have looked and said, yes, what's this guy doing? And Jesus says what he's doing is he's being prodigal in his grace and his mercy and his love, and he is seeking them out. And friends, the prodigal, reckless grace of God that doesn't just leave an opening for you but seeks you is the only hope you have and the only hope I have. I don't care if you're a younger or an older son. If God didn't seek you first, you would never seek him. We love him because he first loved us. That's why he has sought us out. Thanks be to God. And then the last thing is the father's heart of joy. The first two parables both end with joy. When the person finds the sheep, they don't just scold the sheep and then go back. No, it's a party. I found my lost sheep. Now, you might say, well, you already had 99. But Jesus says, ah, but there is more joy in heaven over one than over the 99. The one coming home is cause for celebration. And the woman with the 10 coins there's, there's the joy over finding the one. Let's have a party. And then when the son comes home, notice what the father does. He throws a huge feast in verses 22 to 24. The father said to his servants, bring out the robe, put it on him, the ring on his finger, the sandal on his feet, and bring in the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You have to understand, see, we think of, this is the equivalent. We think of, hey, run down to Giant or Safeway and buy a few steaks. It's not. This is, we're going to kill the animal, and we're going to invite all of Annapolis' neck in here for a party. Because when you kill the cow, the family's not, remember, you don't have a refrigerator or a freezer. we got to all eat this thing. We're having a feast, and everybody's invited to the feast. We are going to have a celebration because my joy at the fact that my son is home, it is overflowing, and it knows no bounds. I want a party for my son to come home. And in fact, notice in, when the older son is being rude and denying this, the father says in verse 32, we had to celebrate and be glad. This is my very nature. I can't welcome a wandering child home and not celebrate. It's not possible. It is not who I am. The heart of the father is full of joy because the restoration of relationship with his wandering child. See, the younger son thinks it's about things. The older son thinks it's about rules. The father knows it's about relationship. That's what it's about. That's the father's heart. And the father says, when I have that relationship, whatever's gone on before, there is joy in my heart now. And so the father's not a dour man, but one whose heart is full of joy that he longs to share with his children. I hope as I keep saying the father here, you're picking up on who Jesus is really teaching us about. This is really the way our God is. God is not dour. He's one whose heart is full of joy that he longs to share with us. The younger son errs in thinking that joy was found outside the father's presence. The older brother errs in thinking what the father wanted was a dour, joyless obedience. When in reality, what the true joy is found in the father's presence and in a loving relationship with him. Not relating to rules, relating to him. That's all the father ever wanted was a relationship with the children. So let's apply the word. And again, we're going to come back in the next couple of weeks to the younger and older children. So I'm not really asking so much today regarding them. I want us to understand the father's heart. 
And so the question that we ask, and then we'll come to the table, is do I know the Father's heart? See, Jesus told this parable because the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the people who spent all day, every day studying the Bible, had somehow missed the heart of God. How? It's like going to the Grand Canyon and missing the Grand Canyon. I don't know how one does it, but that's what they had managed to do. And so Jesus is teaching us this, and because it's the same thing today, we misunderstand the heart of God. Many of us misunderstand it like the younger son, and we think that true joy is found outside the Father's presence. And those who do that wander, and they seek joy in anything and everything other than God. And like the younger son, for a while, it works. And then diminishing returns kicks in, and it ends up consuming the people. Some of us are like the older brother, thinking that what God wants is dull, slavish, joyless obedience. But I want every person here today to hear this. What God wants is relationship. And friend, that should astound you. He does not need you. He does not need me. You have nothing to offer him that he can say, wow, I didn't have that before. Everything you have has come from him in the first place. What he wants is relationship. What he wants is us to experience joy of knowing and being known. This is what brings him and us joy. So as we're beginning 2019, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Do I know deep in my gut, now this is the kind of funny thing, the, the way the word compassion is used in the New Testament most often is that the old King James was bowels of mercies. That is because the actual word, Greek word splankna, means guts. That's what it means, guts. It means deep down inside, okay? So what I'm asking you is, not if you got a little head knowledge and you can answer a quiz, do you in the deepest core of your being, down in your guts where you live, do you know that the Father's heart is full of love for you? Do you know that? Because the younger son didn't, and the older son didn't. They didn't know that. Do you? Do I? Do I know that the Father loved me so much that he sought me out? And when the cost was not crawling into a valley to get a sheep, or sweeping into a corner and crawling under a bed, but when the cost was the sinless Son of God, nailed to a cross, bearing righteous wrath for my sin, the Father did not flinch. He paid the price of my redemption. Do you know that? Deep, deep in your guts, do you know that? Because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves being younger sons or older sons.
Do I know that what the Father desires and what brings the Father joy is a close daily relationship with me? And actually in one of the prophets it says that God rejoices over us with love. That's, friends, that, if you get it, that will make you shake your head. I, but see, that's what God wants. This morning we were having prayer before the meeting and one of my granddaughters was up in my lap and partway through she even curled up more and looked up at me and put her head right up to my chest. And I said, that's bothering, Papa. I don't want that while I'm trying to pray. Who thinks that's what I said? See, I just leaned over and said, Papa loves you. I'm not looking for what I can get from her. What can a five-year-old or a six-year-old give me? What I want is relationship. That's exactly what God wants with you and me. It's not about rules. It's not about God being dour and sour. It's God saying, I rejoice for relationship with you. So we're going to come to the Lord's table. Because at this table, we're reminded of the Father's heart of love for us. We're reminded that the Father sought us, even at the price of his son's broken body and shed blood. And we're reminded that the Father has joy and celebration with us because this meal is a picture of the day when we are finally home and God could only describe in a metaphor that day. What is it? The marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. God says, oh, this is celebration. This is what I've been driving for from all eternity. This is what I've been looking for is me and my people together. And every time we come to this table, we're doing this until he comes. We're reminding ourselves, this is where it is driving. So I want you to come to the table today looking for God's love, reminding yourself that God has sought you and that joy is found. God's ultimate joy is in us being with him. And no price was too great for our God to do that. If you are a visitor here today, and we have a number of you, you don't have to be a member of our congregation. You do need to be a Christian, which means you understand what I'm talking about, that our only hope is the prodigal, reckless grace of God. You, you are a younger son or an older son, but either way, we have wandered from our Father. But God welcomes us back because of Jesus. If you believe that, you are welcome to eat at this table. But understand that in eating at this table, we're professing that's what we believe. That, that's what this statement is. I believe that I am accepted only because of Jesus and not because of anything I do. If you uh, need gluten-free, if you raise your hand, we will bring that to you. Other than that, I encourage you. Let's take the bread and the cup, and we're going to come together to our prodigal God. For what I receive from the Lord... I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I pray for every one of us as we come to this table this morning that we would come not out of slavish fear or ritual, but understanding your heart of love, your heart that seeks, your heart of joy when we sit in your lap. Lord, would you welcome us in by your Holy Spirit. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just three or four moments. Gracious Father, you are the God of love. Out of your overflowing love, you created us. And in your redeeming love, you sent your Son to restore us to yourself. This broken bread is a symbol of your love for us. And this morning, we take it in faith, confessing our sins and professing that our only hope is the prodigal, vast love of God. Take and eat. Lord, like the shepherd in the parable, you did not wait for us to return, but you actively sought us out. Like the woman, you searched every corner to search and find and restore us to yourself. Though that restoration cost the life of your own son, you did not flinch, but willingly paid the price of our redemption. Today we declare that your seeking was not in vain, for we are your people, sons and daughters of the living God. We take this cup in faith, recognizing that Jesus' blood was spilled because of our sin and confessing that our only hope of salvation is the blood of Christ that shows us the loving and seeking heart of our God. Friends, take and drink. O God, our God, you are the God of joy. Like the Father in the parable, you rejoice over your restored children. You have clothed us in the robes of Christ's righteousness. You have given us the signet ring of your Holy Spirit to guarantee our inheritance on the final day. And you have prepared a great banquet for us, and today we have been given a foretaste of that great banquet. Lord, we ask that we would live in anticipation of the great banquet of joy, and that we would bring joy to your heart as we walk with you each day desiring you above all, and finding our joy and meaning in your presence. Do this by your Holy Spirit, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together, friends, and I'm going to speak a word of benediction and blessing over us from 2 John chapter 1, verse 3. I encourage you to receive the blessing of your gracious Father. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, 
in truth and love. Go forth filled with the blessing of your God. Amen. Amen. See everyone later this week as we serve at Winter Relief. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.